Welcome to Kino Society with Owen Shapiro. In today's episode, we have Daniel Martin, having provided special effects to British cinema for over a decade. Daniel Martin has developed talent for delivering high-quality work that caters to each film's unique budgetary and creative requirements. Welcome to Kino Society. Hi, thanks for having me. So what's made you want to get a career in the film industry? Uh, I mean, I think it was special effects before it was film. Uh, When I was a kid, I was into magic. Uh, So when I found out about special effects, um, it felt like, you know, magic to a a bigger end. Um, And at that point, I was consuming as much film as I could get my hands on, which was limited at the time. And it's just been a love that's followed with me all my life. So what um, school did you go to to learn special effects? Um, I mean, initially, uh, I was a combination of sort of self-taught uh, via books and magazines that I could get my hands on when I was younger. Uh, as I got older, I didn't really know anyone involved in film. So I just did you know, any job I could take. I, uh, as long as it had something to do with the film industry, I'd take that. So I, uh, you know, from as sort of small as working in cinemas when I was young I took a work experience job in a post-production house in my hometown um I trained as a camera operator I worked as a a camera operator for a company that did sort of corporate and event filming every time I got a sniff of someone who was related to special effects I'd sort of you know try to get introduced to them and and talk to them about that and and I was lucky to make you know a few contacts over the years Uh, eventually I did go to university Uh, I started my degree when I was 21 uh, and I did an engineering degree that was tailored towards special effects. Um, And I went straight from there to a job at the Jim Henson's Creature Workshop, which I got via finding out someone knew someone there and badgering them to to introduce me. Uh, Yeah, I've not not really looked back. So what's an average workday like for you now? Uh, I try and keep them shorter than they used to be. I think one of the, the trickiest things in film in general, but in, in special effects definitely, uh, is getting the work-life balance right. Um, it's very easy to, to burn yourself out. And I think with, a spe- uh, with special effects especially, it can be tricky because we're somewhat anathema to even our colleagues uh, in the film industry. So often it's not quite, re- not quite understood what's being asked of us with what seems like maybe a small change. Um, can have huge effects on the effects department. Uh, when you're younger and sort of more excited and, and also sort of less sure of your place in the industry, that can lead to taking on unhealthy levels of work. So, I mean, I haven't had to do an actual all-nighter for over a year now, which is great, <laughs> but they still do happen occasionally. But like when I was starting out, I mean, yeah, it was easier because I was younger. But when I was starting out, I'd often do sort of like maybe one, two all-nighters a week. So do you think that your career got easier or harder on you? Because at the same time, as you said, you're getting older, but also you're getting more experienced. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, as you get more experience, you get more, uh, more responsibility and there's more at stake if you make a mistake uh, or if you get something wrong. Uh, but yeah, obviously the, the sort of the wisdom and experience and, and also knowing how to set your boundaries within the industry as well um that come that can only come with age and experience so it's kind of a it's a trade i think you've worked in both tv and film before what's the big difference between two uh, i mean it used to be that films have more money uh, so the budgets were bigger but that's 
kind of changing now with, with the changing relationship between film and cinema. I think TV probably has more of a run-up because it tends to be filming for longer because it's a, a longer format. You often know what you're doing further in advance, but then that's not always the case. You know, I'm working on a show at the moment where they don't even get the scripts for an episode until like a couple of weeks before the episode shoots. So that can be quite tough. Otherwise, there's not that much difference, you know? There are little differences but that change from project to project, but that's the same within, you know, when you stay just within film or just within TV. I see the same people crossing between both constantly. Yeah, I, I think that what differences there were are sort of dropping away now. So in the past, do you think you preferred to work on, or, well, when you had lower budgets, did you have to find more creative ways to utilize them, or did the visual effects just generally end up looking cheaper? I mean, I think you have to know what your limitations are. And if you overreach those limitations, that's when things end up looking cheap. You can, you know, with a, a mixture of planning and, and experience, you can make a, a cheap effect look good as long as you you know what you're doing. The that. <laughs> so what's kind of creativity does your job require since special effects is often seen as more of a technical thing than anything? Yeah, I mean, it is. I think it's a technical art. I mean, I get a, a decent amount of creativity because I design as well. So it's not just uh, working to someone else's sketches, which is very gratifying. Uh, and sometimes I work with other designers. I'm doing another job at the moment um, where I'm working for uh, directly for the production designer on a particular part of a, of a project. So I'm still getting to put in my aesthetic input, but obviously, you know, there's someone above me and, and above him, there's the director. So there's always that sort of hierarchy. But I've been lucky enough that the people I've worked with have been on the whole excellent collaborators and have been interested not just in my technical ability, but my aesthetic uh, taste as well. So speaking of aesthetic taste, does that often clash with any of your crew and in what ways? Yeah, I mean, I think as a as a technical artist, you know, everyone below the director has to understand how what they're doing fits into the bigger picture so it's no you know it's not really acceptable to turn up and fight with the uh the director over over what you think an aesthetic is but sometimes you know you might have to say well actually what you're describing won't work for reasons you know if you have experience in a particular thing particularly with a greener director or, or someone who maybe hasn't worked with effects very much they may be requesting something but not understanding what it is that they're asking for um, but that's not necessarily an aesthetic thing. That's that's more on the technical side. Um, I don't think so. I think when you take a job, you you know, part of the reason you choose a job is because you enjoy the aesthetic and you like the you know the way the director talks about it. So I think you know going in whether or not you're suitable for it. And hopefully, if you're not suitable for it, then you don't take the job. So do you prefer working with directors that know exactly what they want, or prefer with directors that are a bit looser? That they're like willing to accept more freedom, uh, looser kind of requirements. Yeah, absolutely. Although I like we were talking earlier about like not overreaching your your ability, and I think that whereas that's very important for budget, um, in practical effects and digital effects, it's more about the tech. And if you look at the films where the digital effects have stood the test of time, things like Jurassic Park and Terminator Two, it's because a very experienced crew knew that they you know they were very confident in what they were doing. They knew that they knew how to do those things. They weren't overreaching. So I think, yeah, it's, a lot of it's just about knowing the limits of the medium with which you're working. I mean, things like Jurassic Park and Terminator 2 still look fine, but they don't look particularly very good. Yeah, they're not. Terminator 2 has that uh, liquid character that 
looks very 90s, like very 90s CGI. Absolutely. But but again, I think, you know, the, the choice of that character to be that liquid metal is in part driven what was possible digitally at the time. You know, he's written as a shapeshifter, but the liquid metal thing is is a is a very cool addition. And it's because it's something that they knew they could do. And it, it still looks pretty good. Yeah. So so any of your works that stick in your mind that may have been the most challenging to pull off? I mean, you know, there's challenges in every job. Uh, it's it's more fun when it's challenging. Obviously, that can tip over into frustrating if it's too challenging. <laughs> but often, like I, I use a phrase when talking to directors about how to sort of punch up an effect, which is to uh, start introducing problems we know how to solve. If you uh, if you approach the 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 effect in sort of the most logical and simplest way possible, that's fine. And that's probably going to be the most cost-effective way of doing it. But once you've done that, if you've got the option, you should start to make your own life difficult with shot choices, with length of shot, with all of all of the additional things around that uh that that make up the rest of the film. But you introduce those things, those problems when you know how you're going to solve them already. Because then you can start really pulling the wall over the audience's eyes and, and creating those the sort of wow moments. So we already discussed about the difference between working in TV and film, but what about working on just generally lower budget projects? What's the big difference between that and working in film? Well, I mean, I think that's, again, that's the, that difference has changed throughout my career because, you know, when I was younger, I was sort of very excitable and I was, I'd do everything I could to the point of, you know, not really making any money to deliver as best as I can for the film. I feel that I I bring a lot more if I'm on a lower budget film, A, I probably can't take a lower budget film if it's, you know, just any old film because I have overheads that I didn't used to have. I've got a bigger workshop, I've got a team that I have to pay. Um, so there's a sort of an immediate sort of lowest level budget that we have to operate within. Um, but for smaller projects, and by smaller I mean shorter rather than just lower budget, if it's if it's a single thing and it's a something that particularly speaks to me, then yeah, I'll still take on those those smaller things. I'll fit them in around other stuff. And so I think it's about it being exciting enough to to justify turning away from other probably more lucrative projects. Because you know, you can only do so much at one time. Oh, what's it like starting your own workshop? <laughs> I uh, I kind of muddled through and did really well. I, I I rose pretty quickly because I was lucky to have good collaborators. Um, the first uh, the first feature I designed makeup effects for, which was called The Expelled in America or F in the UK, directed by Johannes Roberts, was based on a short film that I'd done with him. That was the first time we'd worked together. And then the short did well at a couple of festivals and it picked up a, a, a budget for a feature version to be made. I designed that. I followed him across to that. It got a cinematic release. It got well-reviewed. So, you know, I, my first feature was released theatrically. Immediately, I started getting more work. And at that time, I was still going back and forth between working in my own workshop and, and working for other people. You know, I'd go and work on other movies as part of another team when my workshop was quiet. But then as my reputation grew, and, and again, as I got to work with more and more notable directors, the second Human Centipede film was a big deal for me. That put me on the map for the horror like horror world and then getting to work with Ben Wheatley on sightseers um, and then with him again and again over the years uh, has been very beneficial to me. Um, so I think, yeah, I've, I've been, I've been lucky in that the the people I've got to work with have, have not only risen uh, in their sort of the, the world that they're working in, but also have been sort of like loyal enough and pleased with my work enough to, to take me along for the ride. 
All right, now for a few more personal questions. Um, what's your favorite movie? It's very difficult. It's a it's a changeable uh, a changeable answer. The my favorite movie I've seen recently uh, is Sidney Lumet's Failsafe, which I watched on a whim. I didn't know very much about it. It blew me away. Uh, for your listeners, maybe who haven't seen it or heard of it, it was uh, made and due to be released the same year as uh, Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove. And it has a not dissimilar premise in that it's about the American military and American government dealing with the possibility of an oncoming uh, nuclear event and how how the Americans would deal with that. Stanley Kubrick worried that it would overshadow or cause problems at the box office for Dr. Strangelove had his company purchased the movie and not distribute it. So while it was a huge critical success, it, hardly anyone saw it. It did eventually get released, but later after Dr. Strangelove. Uh, it's on Criterion in the States. I think it's it's either Criterion or BFI in the UK. And it's genuinely astonishing. The ending of the film is like a punch to the chest. <laughs> yeah, Sidney Lumet is a really, really good director. I love. Yeah, he's incredible. Yeah, any other favorite directors? Uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of Takeshi Kitano, um, although I haven't been keeping up with his more recent stuff. I, um, I a little while ago, I watched for the first time the uh, the Human Condition, the the Japanese trilogy, nine and a half hour. Yeah, just breathtaking pictures i'm yeah I'm a, I'm a big fan of of being sort of dragged across the crawls emotionally <laughs> have you seen um kawaii dan oh yeah not for a long time quite done yeah yeah i love that that's probably my favorite of his works human condition not far behind though i love that movie or all three of them yeah human condition is so good um what would you say to someone who was interested in entering the world of cinema cinema in general i mean you know, you've got to do it for the love because making money is difficult. <laughs> if, yeah, if it's something you set your heart on and you really want to do, then there's various pathways in. Most of them involve meeting the right people. So unfortunately, if you're uh, a little socially awkward or nervous, that can be the hardest uh, hardest thing. There's this unfortunate Venn diagram of of sort of personal traits that has to be filled in for, for a successful film career. Uh, you have to be able to do the work, but you also have to be able to sort of talk to people and meet people and so on. And then you have to be able to, at least to some level, manage your business as well. So those three things aren't, you know, not everyone has access to all three of those things. Um, try and go to film festivals, watch as many films as you can, read scripts. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's difficult because there are so many different roles and so many different paths for each of those roles. Um, for special effects, I think it's never been a better time, you know, whereas I used to have to scour libraries and find comic book shops in London that were importing American like film magazines and makeup effects magazines. Nowadays with the Stan Winston School of Character Arts and Tobdo Puccini's books and podcasts everywhere, um, there's, you know, there's never been a better time to get your hands on the information. And the materials are hard, easier to get hold of now with, you know, most of these shops having an online presence and international shipping being easier. Um, and an actual industry popping up around effects rather than us just having to borrow tech from other comp other uh, other industries. So, do you have any current projects? Yeah, I'm I'm on five five projects at the moment. I'm in development for a for a project. Um, we're providing some stuff for a, an ongoing TV show. Um, we're doing uh, two features, uh, a long a TV series for Amazon. Uh, and I'm uh, prepping for a couple of features at the moment as well. So 
none of which I can talk about. I'm sorry. <laughs> so how can my listeners find and connect with you? Uh, probably easiest is I'm on Twitter at 13fingerfx uh, and the same on Instagram, although I use Twitter more. And uh, of course, I co-host the Arrow Video podcast as well, where we talk about cult film releases. Um, so if people want to listen to that, that is also on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if yeah, if anyone's got any questions, they're welcome to to message me. My DMs are open on both. Yeah, happy to answer any further questions if people have follow-up. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Dan. And that's all for today. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Kino Society on iTunes and Spotify. Thank you so much. Bye.